Heritage. I'm Lyndon Lopate. Sally Hayden begins her book about what's become one of the most devastating humanitarian crises in history when she was at home in London on Sunday, August 26, 2018, and she received a Facebook message that read, Hi, Sister Sally. We need your help. We are under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. Her book about the migrant crisis across North Africa, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, is published by Melville House and brings Sally Hayden, the Africa correspondent for the Irish Times, to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, the the uh, sender identified himself as an Eritrean refugee. Eritrea is one of today's more repressive dictatorships. It's been called the North Korea of Africa. Had he left his country for political reasons? Yeah, so he had left his country. Um, like mer- many Eritreans, um, they leave, basically they'll say that they're seeking freedom. But in Eritrea, what you have is mandatory military service. And so once children effectively become of age, I mean, teenagers, young people reach their last year of high school, they get drafted into the military and from that point they don't have freedom to choose their own futures the un has called this a slavery like system and so a lot of them escape um at whatever point they can just uh, effectively looking for freedom well he'd been held in a libyan detention center for months before he contacted you he was locked up in a huge hall with hundreds of others but weren't they also trapped by the fact that armed conflicts had broken out in the streets of tripoli outside the detention center. Libya was in the midst of a civil war. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was a civil war. It was an intermilitia conflict um, at the time. And actually, it had just broken out that weekend. And of course, for me, I got this first uh, message. I was skeptical. You know, I was thinking it's weird that they would contact me. It's strange that, like, how do they have a phone even if they're in a prison? Um, Isn't it strange that conflict has just broken out? That was what he was saying. And so I contacted a Libyan journalist and I asked, was that true? Had had a war just broken out? And he said, yes. Um, And I said, could there be what I was being told was there were 500 men, women and children who had all been locked in this, what they called a prison for months um, and had now been abandoned without food and water by the guards who had essentially kept them locked inside. And this Libyan journalist said, yes, that that is possible. Um, And so from that point, I started to take this seriously. And that began what has been years of investigation. Although you at the beginning, you told the uh, the person who contacted you that you couldn't do much to help. Yeah, I mean, I'm a journalist and I tend to say that as soon as I possibly can, because I don't want someone to get the wrong impression about what my role is. I mean, you don't want to make false promises. And essentially, I'm a reporter. You know, I don't know if you consider that helping or not. But um, what we do is shine a light on something. So generally, if someone contacts me, I don't want them to think that I'm going to actually be able to do something and then give me information, you know, what would be against their will, like coerced out of them. So I, I generally always say I can't help, but you can tell me what's happening if you want. And actually what this guy wanted was someone to shine a light on what was happening. And why Hugh? Uh, because you had been reporting from Sudan, so they knew who you were? Yeah, so what I found out later was that 
the first person who contacted me, his brother had actually mentioned my name because I had reported in Sudan, which is a neighboring country, which many Eritreans as well as Somalis, South Sudanese um, go through on their way to Europe. So they go through there and then they reach Libya and then they try and cross the sea to Italy or Malta. And um, I had reported on allegations of corruption within the United Nations Refugee Agency there. And um, that had led to an investigation. So my re my reporting was quite well known among a lot of refugees there. So that was how they got my name. But at the time I got that first message, I, I didn't realize that. Now, how did Libya come to set up clandestine detention centers in the first place? Uh, was... Um this all because of uh, Libya's proximity to Europe. You said Malta. Sicily isn't far either. But Tunisia is even closer to Europe. Why, why uh, Libya? Yeah, I mean, the detention centers first, it's important to say they aren't really clandestine. They're government associated. So there is a system of detention, which is approved of by, you know, the UN-backed government. There are multiple governments in Libya. Um, and yeah, I think because when Gaddafi was in power, I'm sure a lot of people know until 2011, um, there was a lot more control over who could leave. But now it's essentially like a militia run country. And so what happened initially after the revolution there was that um, a lot of smuggling and trafficking uh, or smugglers and traffickers, basically their businesses flourished. And a lot of people were crossing from Libya. So a lot of people were going to Libya to try and make this crossing. But then what has happened is what's been called, it's it going from the monetization of travel to the monetization of captivity because the European Union has cracked down on people being able to make that crossing. And so it's turned into just basically a hell for refugees and migrants who are trapped there. Is the European Union paying the Libyan government? No. So what the European Union uh, is doing is spending um, tens of millions of euros since 2017 on supporting the Libyan Coast Guard. So what this is, is effectively a circumnavigation of international law, because international law says that refugees or any, anyone basically cannot be returned to a place where their life is in danger. And so European vessels cannot intercept refugees or migrants and push them back to Libya. But Libyan vessels can do that. And so the European Union has been supporting the Libyan Coast Guard um, and also running surveillance, you know, flying helicopters, planes, drones to spot refugee boats, but passing that information on to Libyan vessels because the Libyans can intercept people and bring them back to Libya. And since 2017, around 90,000 men, women and children have been intercepted like that. 90,000, wow. Do we know how many detention centers there are and how long they've been in place? Yeah, I mean, that shifts, um, to be honest, because some get closed, some open, some uh, because they're, they're pretty much all militia run, so the militia may fall out of favor with the government. When I started reporting on this, there were around 26 that were aligned with the wow. government. Um, now, I'm not exactly certain, but I know the number goes up and down, basically. Well, haven't um, similar, uh, people made similarities to Nazi concentration camps like Auschwitz? One of them was even nicknamed Guantanamo. 
Yeah, I mean, and Pope Francis is one of the many people who has compared them to concentration camps. And basically inside these detention centers, I mean, most of the, you know, atrocities like you can imagine happen, like torture, rape, starvation, medical neglect, forced labor. Um, and people are locked up indefinitely. So once you're intercepted at sea, you can be brought back and locked up. There's no charge made against you. There's no legal recourse for you to get out. You're just locked inside. And men and women are kept in separate spaces? Yeah, generally that was what was happening and in the ones that I reported on, that there'd be kind of like a men's hall and a women's hall, and the children would go in with the women, but... Uh, that was kind of, you know, it depended on the age, like above 14, generally, if they were f boys above 14, they'd go in with the man. At one point, the situation got so desperate, they broke down the wall between the men's and, and the women's space. Yeah, I think broke down the door. I mean, that's happened a few times. And it's happened, I mean, that happened when, also when the guards ran away, when there were, um, when there was conflict, because they the men became scared that they couldn't take care of the women basically and that the women were particularly vulnerable um and that i mean they were afraid of that even when the guards were present because there were also threats to women from the guards but it was also harder to but to also kind of the, the the libyans in charge of the center left for a number of reasons at one point um so the the, the prisoners were left alone who who fed them yeah, I mean, no one in a lot of situations. Um, and it is, I guess, a situation slightly in flux because it's not, you know, like I said, the government there is not like a government like you would imagine. I mean, they're kind of propped up by militias. And so it's the different militias that are in charge of the centers who kind of hold sway as to what happens inside. And so even when the guards are there, actually, sometimes when the guards were there, the situation was worse because people would be denied food purposefully or yeah they just wouldn't be fed for days or they might receive like one bread roll or often like just one uh serving of plain pasta with nothing on it but yeah when the guards left of course they were also left without um and yeah it just it just became dependent on the situation really because um you know sometimes there were ways of procuring food but it was very kind of on a case-by-case -case basis the message was sent from a secret cell phone that was shared by hundreds of refugees. Um, weren't the, the phones confiscated when these people became prisoners? Yeah. So, I mean, again, that was, um, you know, that was a situation that I was also confused by. So when I got this message, I was thinking, how do they have a phone? How is that possible? And uh, what I was told about that initial phone was that they had been given a phone when they went to sea. So these were people who had been intercepted at sea. And when you go to sea, the smuggler, if you're lucky, will give you a phone so you can contact, you can send out a distress call if you get into trouble or if you need a rescue from authorities, um, like European authorities, once you reach their kind of water, their search and rescue area. And so that initial phone, uh, I believe, was kind of leftover from that. But then, of course, you know, in every detention kind of prison situation, there are also, you know, there's also corruption and there are guards who will bring things if you pay them money or, you know, it's um, 
yeah, it depended on the detention center as to how strict they were, because there was also guards or even management that would accept money for uh, the detainees to be allowed to be released. And so, of course, you need to have a way of getting that money. And so that was another way that people would secure access to phones because they would be told if you call your family members and get them to send, you know, maybe two thousand dollars or something we will let you be released from this detention center so they need a way to contact their family members to do that and also they uh they wanted uh, to encourage crowdfunding didn't they yeah i mean that was actually the that was more with the smugglers so the way that it worked is that generally um refugees who are trying to reach europe they'll come into libya with smugglers and uh, they tend to travel on what's kind of a go now, pay later scheme. So they'll be promised it, a certain amount of money that it will cost. And they'll enter Libya on the understanding that they're paying that amount of money. It might be $2,000. And they'll be told within three weeks or four weeks, you'll be in Europe. And once they cross the border into Libya, they're then held in warehouses. Um, and at that point, they're told the amount of money has doubled or tripled. And that's when they're lined up and told to contact their family members. And um, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the earlier part of the process. But daily, they'll be expected to call their family members and start asking for this money. And after a certain amount of time, maybe three months, they'll be then tortured until, you know, just to put extra pressure on the family members. And so there were families like I ended up meeting families who had crowdfunded um, money using Facebook or social media and actually it was like really distressing to me as well because I realized that this is happening in plain sight like once you know where to look you can actually find many photos of people literally being tortured that are being used to crowdfund money so family members will post their relatives photos online showing them being tortured and say, please, can anyone send money to this, you know, this number or this account? And they'll use that to crowdfund the money to get them released from the smugglers. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's other ways they go. They were going around markets. They were going, you know, selling all their possessions. They were begging. I met one family who went on the local radio station in Ethiopia to ask for money as well. So, yeah, they were using any means they could because it went from... Initially, you thought you were paying for the transport to Europe, but then you realized you're actually paying to save their life. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Sally Hayden, who's written a book called My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, published by Melville House. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, the smugglers, but was a distinction made between smugglers and police? Yeah. So, I mean, the smugglers are that would be earlier when, like I said, I mean, yeah, there was a distinction, but also not sometimes not a distinction. Like it's a militia run country, so it's not so clear cut. But there would be smugglers, um, smuggling gangs that bring people into the country initially. And if you're lucky, like you could spend a year with smugglers. Some people I interviewed spent two years with smugglers. Um, if they're lucky at the end of that, they get sent out to sea. So I know that people 
when you see those images of people in boats, you know, on the Mediterranean or um, people trying to reach Europe, you think that that's the journey, you know, but actually that's like the end of a very long journey. That tends to be like their attempt to escape sometimes a year or two year long ordeal. Um, and they, they travel long distances to to get there. Uh, and it often costs uh, at, at great expense. Where are they coming from? Yeah, I mean, the people that I interviewed generally were coming from um, a lot of East East Africans or Horn of Africans, people from wars like in South Sudan, in Somalia, where they were fleeing al-Shabaab sometimes or tribal conflicts, um, Ethiopia, where there were people who were from tribes that were being repressed. Eritrea, which is a dictatorship, like you said, um, Sudanese people from Darfur and Sudan. And so it's a real mix of people who have escaped a lot of different situations. And then you have West Africans who are more likely to be what we'd call economic migrants. They're searching for better opportunities or they're trying to escape poverty um, more often than they're trying to escape war or conflict. Some of them also are escaping conflicts. Um, but yeah, it, it tends to be more people looking for opportunities. And um, yeah, they all come together in Libya. So it's like a big mix of people. You know, we tend to talk about refugees. It makes it sound like a homogenous group, but it's not really. A mix of Christians and Muslims, mostly. Yeah, Christians and Muslims and um, I'm sure other religions too, atheists and like everything. No. Uh, after that first message came, more followed from more refugees with stories uh, you mentioned earlier, enslavement, trafficking, torture, murder, tuberculosis, sexual abuse. Uh, we're, we're talking about mod enslavement and a modern-day slave trade, a slave trade? Yeah, I mean, I know, um, yeah, what I called that chapter was 21st century slave trade because effectively it is the buying of and selling of people. And that's, that was the chapter looking at smuggling, um, looking at people being held for ransom, but also they get sent out to do forced labor um, and sent out to work on farms and sometimes in mines as well, or sometimes as domestic work. Some were uh, given to the mafia in southern Italy and put to work on farms there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that. I just, um, I have heard those stories, but that's not linked to what's happening in Libya. Really, that's more when people arrive in Europe. So, in in some cases, uh, these refugees were used as human shields uh, because of the civil war or whatever we we're going to call it in in Libya. Yeah, I mean, so there was later, it's a bit complicated with the conflicts in Libya, because in some ways, there's kind of been constant conflict. But in another way, um, some are bigger than others, if that makes sense. So the first conflict that I started, that I was contacted during, that was uh, an inter-militia conflict in Tripoli. And that calmed down a bit. But then the following year, in April 2019, um, Khalifa Haftar, who's a Eastern general, in Libya basically declared that he was going to take over the capital city. And so, yeah, you could call that a civil war. Um, and at that point, what became very clear was that the detention centers, because they were being run by militias, they were also militia or military bases. 
And so they were being used to store weapons mm. and the refugees were actually being forced, like conscripted, forcibly conscripted to uh, move around weapons and even in some cases to fight. And so, yeah, like I honestly didn't have the same awareness of kind of war crimes at the time. But but what became clear was that the refugees were being they were being detained beside mass weapons stores. And that is a war crime using people as human shields. And I actually spoke to um, a Libyan source at the time who kind of said terribly, this is kind of a win win because if the other side, uh, Haftar's side, the LNA, struck these these uh, detention centers, which were also weapons stores, then they would look like the bad guys because they have killed civilians. And if they didn't, it meant the weapons were all protected. So, I mean, that that is why that's considered a war crime, because you're endangering all those innocent people. Well, they... But they found them useful, and yet at the same time, often there was no running water or electricity. Yeah, I mean, that was going on all the time. That wasn't just at the time of conflict. But, yeah, there would be both no running water and electricity um, because there was a lack of it, but also that was used as a punishment, and that has been used in an ongoing way as a punishment. Like. One of the uh, detainees that I interviewed for the book, he told me that basically this is kind of a strategy that the Libyan guards would use, that if the refugees were always desperate for very basic necessities, you know, they're thirsty or they're tired or they're even fighting among themselves, that they won't be able to mount any sort of proper protest and it makes them much easier to control. And one of the ways that they would do that was they'd just turn on the water for 10 minutes a day, for example, in one detention center. And then everybody, of course, would fight over it because they're desperate to drink something. And that means that they're not capable of kind of protesting in a, in a broader sense. So uh, the way the story has been playing out so far in this conversation is that the Libyans are the bad guys. But weren't all of these people incarcerated as a direct result of European policy since 2017? Yeah, and so that's, um, yeah, that's basically exactly what I said, that that was what was very surprising to me when I started reporting on this, that pretty much everyone I spoke to had tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea, and they had been intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, who are backed mm -hmm. by the EU, um, who are, you know, being... The EU, like I said, is spending tens of millions of euro on the Libyan Coast Guard. And so that is why, you know, for me, I wrote the book. This is why I wrote the book. And this is why I want people to read it, because I want people to know the consequences of European policy and how it has hardened and how it is, you know, killing people, basically, and the atrocities that are resulting from it. So you were able to interview hundreds of refugees and migrants who were hoping to find sanctuary in Europe and found themselves stuck in Libya once the EU started funding interceptions in 2017. And you described some pretty horrific things, people out in a dinghy uh, thinking they're going to be rescued by a helicopter or a small plane, only to discover that that's just the way they're being sighted so that they can be picked up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess uh, these people kept on thinking that uh, uh, they were going to wind up in Europe successfully, and then it, it didn't 
turn out that way. Um, now, y you were... Uh, is the EU open to welcoming refugees from Ukraine, but not from dictatorships in Africa? And and uh, is that an official policy? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can say that's the official policy because that's exactly what's been happening. Um, I think now it's more than 4 million Ukrainians that have crossed the border into the EU. And obviously that's been kind of, I mean, it's good. I don't think anyone can say it's not good. And what's happening in Ukraine is completely horrifying. Um, but at the same stage, it has been very shocking for the, those of us who cover the other EU borders because, yeah, like for me, for years, I've now been documenting the fact that people are being locked up for trying to seek safety and that they're being locked up indefinitely, that they're facing all of these kind of you know, atrocities, crimes against humanity, war crimes, even a UN um, a independent fact-finding mission appointed by the UN Human Rights Council last October. They uh, found that there was evidence that crimes against humanity are being perpetrated specifically against refugees and migrants in Libya and that that's a state-sponsored policy. But the reality is that it's European Union policy that is the reason that they're being intercepted at sea and forced back to Libya. So, yeah, like I said, it's now roughly 90,000 men, women and children who have been intercepted since this policy began and forced back to Libya. And these are the conditions that they're being that they're then facing. It seems like race is obviously a factor in this decision. Yeah, I mean, that's what um, I've been speaking to quite a few of my sources since the Ukrainian war began, and they would say exactly that. They feel that this is racism. Um, and yeah, that if they feel it, like if they had white skin, that this wouldn't be the reaction to them. And I mean, I find it a little hard to argue with that because um, potentially it's also about religion as well. But I think that there was you know, we had this uh, the so-called European migrant crisis in Europe. And after that, there was a rise in power among far-right parties, kind of populist movements. And that was happening across Europe. And I think the more centrist or even left-wing um, politicians felt like they had to react to that by clamping down on immigration. And yeah, this is the result of that, that people are being pushed out of sight and out of mind. And I honestly don't think that the majority of Europeans even know that this is happening. But it's not uh, in, in Europe. Ukrainians are being welcomed in neighboring countries. The, some of the stories you tell here, these people who are escaping from terrible situations in their homelands wind up facing dangers when they once they cross a border to, into the next country. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we have this idea that people, they should go to the first country that they can find safety in, I, which is kind of a tricky concept. I mean, I think it's always good to emphasize that the vast, vast majority of refugees globally are, are in developing countries. Um, but at the same stage, for example, I've seen it in Sudan, Eritreans who escape into Sudan, they face constant exploitation, harassment by the police, um, problems with documents. Even if they have the correct documents, they risk being arrested and deported. 
um, they really find it very, very hard to live there. And so that's, you know, there's this idea that Europe stands for human rights and that if you get to Europe that you can maybe find some sort of security. And actually, like most people that I interviewed for this book, they would qualify for international protection. You know, they would qualify as refugees if they had the chance to have those cases heard. But the irony of international refugee law is that you have to reach the country. Um, you have you have basically have to get on the territory of the country to be able to claim your right to stay in it. And so that's why people are making these illegal journeys or, the you know, I don't know if you say illegal, but like these dangerous journeys. In which sometimes they have to pay off people. Uh, it can get very expensive. Yes, exactly. And I mean, uh, I mentioned earlier, I had been reporting in Sudan. That was how the refugees in Libya initially came across my work. And what I reported in 2017, 2018 was about, um, I'm sure lots of people know about uh, legal like refugee resettlement. So that's kind of what's known as the legal route that um, ostensibly the most vulnerable refugees are chosen to be taken to a safe country and that they can go through this process where they can reach safety like that way through the UN. But actually the amount of spaces that are offered for these programs are very, very tiny. They're much smaller than are needed. And um, what I reported in Sudan was that refugees were then saying that actually uh, people involved in the resettlement program were essentially demanding bribes to be to consider them for this. And actually that was... Um, I think two days after I published that investigation, the uh, UN Refugee Agency announced that they were suspending the resettlement program because they were going to conduct an anti-fraud investigation. And they did later find one staff member guilty of abusing power and soliciting bribes. But for me, that again opened my eyes because we have this idea that, you know, people shouldn't jump the queue, that they may have legal roots if they have a proper claim. But what the refugees there were saying was that actually it's very expensive to take the legal route, you know, so that's also like a, not a fair process. And that's also, you know, marred by corruption. And that um, for them going through Libya was like the less expensive option. I want to talk more about the role of the UN and NGOs uh, after we take a little break. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. conversation with Sally Hayden. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, uh, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Uh, it, you can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org, or you can call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation 
or more, by the way, uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Sally Hayden, who is a, a journalist uh, focused on migration, conflict, and humanitarian crises, and she's a reporter for most of the major publications in the world. Um, she's with the Irish Times as well. And she was, um, in 2019, she was named as one of Forbes's 30 under 30 in media in Europe, in, in part because of the work that she has done on refugee uh, crises. Now, when, once you started hearing all of these stories, I am, I'm assuming you went to the UN and to the NGOs that would um, that that would uh, be involved in these things. Why didn't you get more? Why didn't they get more help? Um, yeah. So I mean, pretty much, I think the first day that I started getting these messages, I started contacting uh, the UN and NGOs, and that was because I thought this initial group, I basically wanted to get them help. I didn't realize at the time that this was a much broader issue. To be honest, I had been quite ignorant about it, um, which made me feel very bad once I had realized. Well, you were in the UK where, uh, Brexit to some degree, is also part of this story, although a distant part of the story, because Britain didn't want people coming in from, these people coming in from Europe. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I reported on Brexit um, and I saw how immigration was used as a tool to essentially make people uh, vote for it. And yeah, you're right. Like all of these kind of movements, including Brexit, were part of the reason that the European policy became a lot uh, harsher on people trying to seek safety. Didn't uh, someone from the UN tell you the situation was too dangerous for them to get involved? So that was initially, I mean, they didn't say it was too dangerous to get involved, but for them to go there, they basically have policies for their staff you know they can't put them in too much danger um and so yeah like that was that was what i faced on that first day um but i think that this tied into like a much broader issue i mean it became interesting to me to start to question like what is the value of a life and which lives are seen as more valuable and i don't think this is about individual staff members i think this is a much broader question um and in terms of the role of the un i started quite quickly being contacted by un staff members who were very uncomfortable with how the un was being used in libya particularly regarding this migration policy and um, what became clear was that the eu they're both supporting the libyan coast guard um, spending money to effectively ensure that there are interceptions of refugees but then when you ask libyan or sorry when you ask european politicians um you know how they feel about the fact that people are being returned into detention centers that have been like you said compared to concentration camps they'll say that they're not comfortable that the detention centers exist but that they're funding the un to improve the conditions in them um and so then i started getting contacted by un staff who basically felt that they were being used to whitewash this policy because actually the level of access that they had to detention centers wasn't uh, you know, it, it didn't always exist and they couldn't just turn up. They had to, for example, call in advance. They couldn't enter certain rooms or certain cells. There were people that they couldn't speak to. Um, refugees couldn't talk freely to them. 
And yeah, it became clear that like the the EU funding, it's not just the Libyan Coast Guard, it's also what's what the UN is um what the UN is being funded for. But then yeah, my book documents the fact that there were UN statements being made that seemed to make it kind of seem to and this again what the staff were saying that we're whitewashing the reality of what was happening in the detention centers for example initially i noticed that some un um some un releases they they'd refer to the rescues of people at sea but they wouldn't mention that those people were being locked up in detention centers and again i was asking one of the big questions that i that I asked everybody, uh, particularly the first year that I reported on this, was who's counting the deaths in detention, because I knew that people were dying inside the detention centres, and no one was counting them. Like, the EU said they weren't responsible. They said maybe the UN is doing it. The UN said they don't have that kind of access to be able to confirm that information. The Libyan authorities obviously weren't doing it because they were going to be held responsible. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a complex situation, but there's various kind of aspects involved that you wouldn't have anticipated. And that's what I tried to draw out in the book. Hasn't it been suggested that corruption was involved in this? I mean, I think that there are different ways that you kind of define corruption, aren't there? And one of the big issues in Libya, like operating in Libya at all, is that it's a state that's being run by militias. And so to operate there, you have to deal with militias. And so... Um, how much of the money that's being spent is making its way to actually prop up those militias. That's, you know, potentially a, a massive amount. And there were things like, you know, a catering contract would be done with someone who ran a militia. And so they'd be getting money, it seemed, for something legitimate. But then is that money being funneled back into propping up the militia or, you know, aid would be distributed and then it would be taken away. It would be seized by the guards or there were... Yeah, there's a, like a lot of different ways that you can profit off this kind of captivity. And I actually, I mean, I don't know if you're going to go on to it, but I ended up on a refugee rescue boat off the Libyan coast. And <laughs> I anticipated that we would rescue um, Africans from other countries, you know, people maybe who I had been in contact with who had been in detention centers or others. We actually ended up rescuing Libyans. And they said that they were now having to flee the country because of these militias, because of the power that they had. And again, that's like a broader part of the you know, the issue are those militias being empowered? Is it making Libya unlivable because there's money being funneled into those militias? Well, don't Europeans who try to assist these migrants face legal prostitution? What, prosecution? What about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I should go into it here because it was a legal case, but I was actually under investigation, under criminal investigation for a year mm. as well. Um, and that was related to basically, yeah, there's like a lot of, uh, I don't, I wouldn't say criminalize it. There's like a lot of threats that people who have any involvement in refugee rescues can get tied up in. And for me, obviously, I was just a journalist. I was just observing what happened on the boat. But even I ended up under criminal investigation for a year that was eventually dropped. And hasn't your life been threatened? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, who threatened it. Do you know? Uh, sorry. Do you know who threatened your life? 
No. So, um, yeah, basically, again, when I started reporting on this, I kind of didn't realize how big a story it was in terms of also danger. But within the first few months, I started receiving kind of private messages that were a bit threatening. I didn't take that that seriously. Um, but then I received a kind of warning <laughs> from from two government agencies that my life was potentially in danger. And that one I took quite seriously. Um, and I have to say, I mean, you're a journalist as well. Like that did have a chilling effect. And I did become quite scared, both that and the criminal investigation as well. I did become quite scared to report for a period of time because I'm a freelancer. You know, I was on my own and um, yeah, you you just get frightened. So I don't I don't know who was behind it, but I know that it kind of had some sort of impact. Definitely. Well, between 2014 and 2020, more than 20,000 men, women, and children died on the Mediterranean Sea in, as part of this story. And yet, I have to be honest, until I saw your book, I had no idea of the extent of it. This has not been a big news story. We're talking about a lot of people. Why do you think, uh, despite the fact that you started publishing the stories, uh, why do you think that it didn't become a, uh, a, a better-known situation? I mean, I think, yeah, there are probably many layers to that, but having worked as a journalist since 2013, so over the whole period that, you know, these sort of the level of drownings escalated, I know that audiences or readers or you know the general public just didn't want to read about this anymore and that it became kind of even editors they'd be like oh you know we don't we've covered this it's kind of more of the same thing and actually you become very detached particularly when you don't know who these people are you don't you know the humanity is kind of removed when you just hear a number and even in the past week 90 people have drowned in the Mediterranean like but um, but yeah, we don't know, like, if you don't know their faces, you don't know their stories, you don't know their names, then it's much easier to detach. And I mean, that's part of why I read the book. I haven't in any sense given any sort of, um, you know, done any, you know, it needs to be a lot greater. It's like a huge number of people, but at least I thought I want to make sure that there's a few names that are known. Um, because at least it makes if you if you give that humanity to people or back to people, it makes it a bit harder to ignore what they're saying. But at the same stage, I think that this European policy has effectively you know, managed to dehumanize people. Like part of what is being done is that people are being locked up. They're being denied a voice. They're being silenced. And that makes it a lot easier to dehumanize them. And I actually look at in the book um I interview lawyers who were looking at whether migrants, so the term migrants can be used uh, as under international law, you need to be a group that's being persecuted to have um, certain crimes committed against you. And they were saying, you know, even though migrants, they come from all different backgrounds, like the term migrants is being used to dehumanize people. And if you had a group of tourists that were in the sea, you would always rescue them. But this word migrants means that you think that you know their lives aren't worth saving essentially and that's what's being done like uh, the language even that's being used is all about dehumanization i think mm -hmm. 
Well, you write, you become cargo, a piece of meat, a being that loses humanity when you can no longer recognize the humanity of others around you. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that was even people that I interviewed that were locked in detention for literally years, they would say that they felt that they became part of a system where they even were losing their own humanity because they'd start to forget who they were. They'd start to forget what made them original. They'd, you know, just feel like everything had been taken away from them. And that was about being locked in this system, spending years in a system where you're not getting education, you're not getting even sunlight, you know, fresh air, you have no job, you have nothing. Um, And yeah, that's, that's how I mean, that was actually coming from what they were saying. But I also think that the general kind of populations of the rich world are also guilty of, of you know, dehumanizing people like that, too. My guest is Sally Hayden, uh, a, a journalist who's based between the UK and Uganda. Uh, she, She's written a book called My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, published by Melville Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what's the story behind the title of your book, My Fourth Time We Drowned? So the story actually comes from a quote from a Somali refugee who I interviewed as part of the book. Um, And I can read it to you here. He says, I was caught by the Libyan Coast Guard three times. First time from Karabuli, East Tripoli. Second time Zawiya. Third time Zuwara. And my fourth time we drowned. And the fifth time I made it to safety. Mm. And he said that because he tried to cross the sea five times. The first three he was caught um, by the Libyan Coast Guard and sent back to detention Actually, the fourth time, two of his family members died. Um, They drowned. And that's why he says the fourth time we drowned. And I also, for me, that kind of conveyed the fact that people, I mean, it's not just an individual experience, this type of migration. You're trying to flee for your family. You know, you're trying to make a better life for your wife or your children or whoever is with you. And eventually he made it himself to Europe. But he's so traumatized by what he's been through. I mean, it's very hard to get over that sort of experience. Well, these are people who've made unimaginable choices. They've had to risk everything to survive in a system that wants them to be silent and to disappear. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it, definitely, that people are just being locked up um, without legal recourse and, yeah, essentially silenced. So what happens when the family, the the whole family uh, makes this trip and is split up? Is it possible for them to reunite? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the situation, of course. But um, if one, if someone's in Libya, it's very, very hard to get evacuated to a family member. Like that's family reunification. That's very, very difficult. And I've actually interviewed, for example, there was a husband who was in Germany and a wife that was locked in detention in Libya. And they were trying to get her over to him. And there was essentially no way to do it. Um, but yeah, there's a, there was even a boy, a son who ended up, it was the father and the son from Sierra Leone. And when the Libyan Coast Guard was doing the interception, the father managed to make it to a rescue boat, a charity rescue boat. And he was taken to Italy and the son was taken back to Libya and they were split. So, I mean, that has happened. The system is kind of quite inhumane in that sense. And it can just end up down to chance and, but what also happens a lot, and I'm sure this is what, what a lot of your listeners will be thinking of, is that 
um, men will go ahead because the journey is so dangerous that the man will mm -hmm. go to Libya and leave the woman and the children maybe in the country that they, um, you know, that that he's fed from or maybe in the next country like maybe if they're Eritrean they'll be in Sudan and he'll go ahead he'll try and cross the sea and get asylum in uh, one country and then he'll try and get them to be reunified with him but that process can take years and years and quite a few people that were my sources when they were in Libya they're now in Europe but they're desperate to have their their wife and their children join them and the process is so slow and still there those people are in danger you know so they're they find it very hard to move on as well so yeah all of all of that happens every type of you know so, I, it's not a it's not a it's not a kind system you know so some of them are now in europe are some european countries accepting them this uh, has the pandemic played a role in all of this story yeah so i mean i've been covering this now for almost four years um, and some of my sources have managed to make it to Europe through two different routes. Some of them have crossed the sea and been rescued by charity rescue ships. Um, or in one case, he, uh, one guy even sailed all the way to Malta in a boat with um, more than 100 others. And they just reached Malta by themselves, which was pretty incredible. And then there are also people who have been evacuated through the UN Refugee Agency. And before the pandemic, they were evacuating about 2,000 people a year, um, which, again, is much smaller than the number who need it. And those people will generally be sent to sometimes straight to Europe, but that's quite rare generally or more generally. They go to Rwanda or Niger where they are in what's called a transit center and they can stay there for months or even more than a year. Were and you then able, get moved on. Were you able to meet many of these people? Yeah, I've met a lot of them at this stage, and I traveled to Rwanda as well, and also to various European countries. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was amazing. It was like, if you've been in touch with someone for literally years, and they've gone through this kind of horrific sort of experience, and literally people have been on the phone to me or been messaging me when they've been like shot at, they've been you know, survived bombings, they've been starved, all of this, um, to meet them in person and know that they're safe is really amazing. So yeah, I have, that has happened. And that's in the book as well. Well, you've been, you, you, you've been based in Uganda as well. So um, were you, uh, did you meet people there who wanted to, to go to Europe? Or is Uganda no, I mean, a more happy country? I mean, I haven't met many Ugandans who um, have wanted to go to, who, no, not that have wanted, but have that, that have taken this Libyan route. Uganda, I mean, they do have a dictatorship, but it's like not probably as, it's not as strict as uh, Eritrea's and they don't have conflict at the moment. And so people aren't fleeing in the same way. I mean, I think people, when they flee their country, they tend to be driven by pretty extreme uh, situations. I mean, most people don't want to leave where they've grown up and where their family are. And we, have very we, we have very little time left, but has the Libyan situation resolved itself? No, this is really ongoing. And yeah, I hope to that this day, there's can... still... There's still warring factions. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not a stable country, um, and yeah, it's the situation is ongoing. The interceptions are continuing as well. All of this is still unresolved. It's such a sad story, and one that 
should get a lot more attention than it's received. Uh, my guest has been Sally Hayden, a journalist focused on migration, conflict, and humanitarian crises. And the book we've been discussing is My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. It is published by Melville House. What a pleasure it's been having you on, even though the story you've told is so sad. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. Please do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't hear anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing My Fourth Time We Drowned by Sally Hayden so why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI Org. And you also might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10 a month or more. Uh, that steady income allows uh, the station to plan for the future. And we will say thank you for becoming a sustaining member by sending you a WBAI tote bag. But either way, I hope that you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station. The only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listeners sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Friday when my guest, Elizabeth Cripps, will discuss her new book, What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care. We'll see you then.